0: All of you who are writing exams and uh, papers and all of that, you all have that look in your eye. Uh, So we're glad the people from Encounter are here (laughs) who look a little bit more alive. But just take if you're here on the Encounter Day, just take a look around you at uh, some of the students that don't have the name tags. And that's what you would be like next year. (laughs) Just something to look forward to uh, in that. I love, you just have to talk to Carla. I love Christmas. Like, I love Advent. I love everything about uh, Christmas carols. I, I love presents. I know I should live more simply, but I love presents. I've been hinting to Carla on a regular basis about the things that I'm looking forward to an iPad or two, <laughs> an e reader, anything that would just make me feel good. I, I love. Christmas carols. I love Christmas Eve. Uh, This church I served in a number of years ago, we used to have a midnight service. It would start at 11 would end at midnight. And I think I looked forward to that more than anything. And the church was a bit of a mongrel church. We all kind of didn't have any family in the city. And so afterwards, we would go home to our place and all these different uh, single young adults and married young adults would come. And about... 3 o'clock in the morning, our daughter would say, Dad, when are they going home? (laughs) I loved everything about it. Except every time when I come to Christmas, I find myself in this incredible tension between what we sing and what we say, peace on earth, goodwill to all, and the reality. Do you feel that? I mean, the tension between what is and what we sing about. I mean, there's something about Christmas that, that, that somehow ties us up in a knot because while we're singing of great glad tidings and of good news, Haiti is on the news. And Korea. And Afghanistan. And all of those things that kind of glare and say, I don't think so. I don't think so, but I want to suggest to you this morning that that's the tension that we as followers of Jesus Christ live in. It's this tension between the not yet and that which is promised. A number of years ago, ago I was in Kenya and I had just finished teaching for a week and one of my colleagues got typhoid and all of a sudden he said, you're going to have to teach my course. So I want you to get a picture of this. Every night I'd be looking at his notes, trying to figure out. He was a theologian and I was not. And, and I was trying to figure out, I like to think I was, but then I realized I wasn't when I looked at his notes. <laughs> and, and I was, I mean, there were all these incredible concepts that needed to be unpacked. And so the one day we're talking about the kingdom of God. Oh, how do you explain the not yet but the yes? of the kingdom of God. How do you explain that at one point we're living in and and at another point we're not? And 40 Kenyan pastors are sitting in this this room that is very dark because lights are hard to find in the Kibera slum, at least bright lights. And I'm sitting to them and they're eagerly listening and I'm trying to think, how do I tell them about this? And at one point, it was one of those rare moments in my life where I had an epiphany and I took a piece of chalk and I walked over to the floor and I drew a line on the floor. I still remember, I drew a line on the floor and this was not common in Kenya in terms of teachers. To all of a sudden, our education faculty would like this. I started to do something creative in terms of teaching. And I drew a line on the, on the, on the floor and I stood like this with one foot on one side and one foot on the other. And I said, this is what it's like to be a person of faith. We live with one foot in the age that is, and one foot in the age to come. And they were gone. oh, that's really interesting. And then I said, and then I came, it came to me. And there's a sense that part of what it means for us to follow Christ, as we lean more and more with one foot still in what is, is not part of what it means to be a person of faith that slowly we begin to lean more and more and rest in the age to come. That's what it's about. And that's actually what Zephaniah is pointing out to us. This is often read in Advent, in this time we're anticipating, and to the people of Israel who are in the midst of kind of being a remnant and all of those things, midst a sense of... of of defeat, perhaps, even, in the midst of this. Zephaniah comes, and he gives them, if you want, a bit of a blast of reality. You're living in this time, but this is the promise. It's like he sets a compass point down for us of things that we can hold on to in the midst of our reality. Do you know, Woody Allen understood this tension. The theologian, Woody Allen. Uh, He did. He he understood this reality of the being in the age that is and the age to come. He said, sure, the lion and the lamb will lay down, but the lamb won't get a lot of sleep. (laughs) It's this, oh, it's not quite what it should be. And listen to what Zephaniah says. With a blast of hope, he tells them, this is my promise. He takes this remnant people and he portrays a God, not just as a warrior, but as a a victor. He portrays a God who comes alongside to save the people who were lost and confused. A God who dwells in his people. Emmanuel, we might think of in the New Testament. God with us. And in that day, he says... It's a promise. He says, and in that day, a promise of presence. And look at what Emmanuel will bring. Look at what this promise, this compass point points toward. In verse 15, he says, in 16, you will not let your hands go limp. It's like saying, you won't want to give up. I'm a Rough Rider fan. Anybody here a Rough Rider fan? There's a few of us. (laughs) Watching the Grey Cup and watching at the end, the Rough Rider fans' hands go limp. It's this idea of giving up, of kind of losing perspective, of, of realizing or thinking that it's all over, except for the Rough Rider fans it was. Next year, we always say that. (laughs) Zephaniah says, your hands will no longer hang, hang limp, and there's a reason. I would suggest to you, and the reason is because of the promise of the birth. I think it's why I'm a Christian. When I turn on the news and I see the things that I see, when I see Haiti, when I see the powerless and the oppression, I live in the hope, not the resignation. I live in the imagination that things can be different. You know what the opposite of hope is? The opposite of hope is not hopelessness. The opposite of hope is a lack of imagination. The lack of the ability to be able to see that things can change, that people's lives can be different, that something can happen in these places. Just work with people who work in places of oppression or places of powerlessness, and talk with them and ask them, how do you not lose hope? They always say this. Because they say, I understand that this is not the end. If it was the end, if this is all there was, then I would give up. The second thing I want you to notice in this compass point is in verse 17. I love this. It's a wonderful picture. A God who delights in us. Have you ever thought of that? Every time I see that word, when God, it says, Psalm 18 is another example of this, where this, this idea that God delights over us. For you who grew up in traditions where the idea that God might delight in you is not a possibility. For you who grew up in in traditions where you think of God as the great judge and he is that. But this is a God who judges because he delights in you. What a difference. Every game I played in football in university, I would go to a stadium. I'd end up at the University of Saskatchewan, playing against them, and I would come out of the tunnel and I'd look up and I'd see my father there. Isn't that interesting? Every stadium that I played in that year in Western Canada, my father had a business trip. He planned a business trip. UBC, University of Saskatchewan, University of Calgary, University of Alberta, Every time I would look up into the stands, there would be my father. Gosh, when you know you're delighted in, his judgments are much different. God delights in you. Isn't that a wonderful image? The other picture I always have in this is a time when Carla and I had had braved eight hours of dreadful drive in the on Andes. I've never been so scared in my whole entire life. I thought we were going on a a wonderful trip to Italy shortly after that, and I was thinking how romantic that was going to be, and all I could think of was we're going to die in Bolivia (laughs) before we even get to Italy. And we finally made it to this village called La Coma, and they had a service, and Carla was to speak. And these are the people that you often hear are living on less than $2 a day. These are what we would call, or have called, peasants. They're sitting in this kind of rebuilt garage, their church. As we're sitting there, Carla stands up and reads Psalm 18 to them. And I remember, and I don't know how she did it, but it was like 40 people, for the first time in their life, understood that God just doesn't stare down on them, but he delights in them. And I watched 40 faces, like, a, like something came to life, as the smiles broke out, to know that God delights in you. In the midst of the not yet, isn't it good to know That the God who is present in your life delights in you? The third thing that's interesting in this is the sureness of his presence. It comes out in one of the translations, it says, and he will sing over you. Isn't that interesting? And he will sing over you. He will quiet you by his love, another translation says. I remember sitting at a hospital as a parent was trying to comfort their child. I'd gone up to be a pastor and I had kind of come alongside them and we were, I tried to calm the child who was going into an operation who was absolutely frightened and screaming and yelling. The mother had to hold him down and then all of a sudden she started to sing over him. And I watched the child just calm. Just go quiet. Isn't it a wonderful image to think of a God who sings over you? Who quiets you with his love? There's lots of other things in here. And I would recommend that you read it. But you see, the point in this and the point of the Zephaniah passages and so many of the prophet passages that point to where the hope of the Messiah and then the the whole point of the declaration of the birth in the midst of the reality of the not yet with one foot in and one foot out leaning toward the kingdom is that you have a compass point in the midst of it. Not to become passive, but actually to believe, to actually believe and hope and imagine that a God who is present, Emmanuel, God with us, that a God who is present can give you the imagination for something different. Marva Dawn says this, she says, Don't work to change the world, work to anticipate the kingdom. Work to anticipate and lean toward that which is is. I don't think I've ever done a Christmas sermon or an Advent sermon where I didn't mention G.K. Chesterton. Some of you may have read him. He has two wonderful images. and one One of these years I'll unpack them. He has two wonderful images about this Jesus. And one is this Jesus who he calls the enormous exception. That's why Christmas is so weird. Because this enormous exception stands in the midst of all that is. And then he calls Jesus, and this is my favorite, the incredible interruption. I do not minimize the scale of the miracle, as some of our milder theologians have done, he says. Instead, I have deliberately dwelt on the incredible interruption, Christ, as the blow that broke the backbone of history, a miracle, a miracle that could have shook the world, but it didn't shake the world, it steadied the world. Let's come to the table and celebrate the enormous exception the incredible interruption who speaks into our life. Amen.